0: and welcome. My name is Amanda Mays and I'm the manager of education for our convocations. I wanted to take just a quick minute to welcome you this evening. Um, Our sponsors for tonight's concert are Purdue's Black Cultural Center and the Davis Family and the Davis Family Endowment. We have a quick round of applause for them. So that we can jump right in and give you Amount of time uh, to learn about our wonderful performance um, this evening. It's my pleasure to introduce James Deckel, the Black Cultural Center's artist in residence, and he has a wonderful program prepared for us this evening. Yes. Thank, you. thank you. My name is James Dekel and I am the artist in residence at the Black Cultural Center. Before I get started, I do want to say thank you to Purdue Convocations for this opportunity, Dr. Mays, Todd, and the rest of the staff. Thank you. And I also want to thank my supervisor, Renee Thomas, uh, for suggesting me for this opportunity, and she's here tonight. And I see some other people I recognize. Thanks for coming. And it's going to be an enjoyable experience. Let me ask this question, how many of you are ready to experience May the Staples tonight? That's right. <laughs> we are here for a concert. And it is my job to give you a little insight as to this living legend that we have the opportunity to witness. I am very happy to share what I have learned over these last months and weeks preparing for this conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to get started because I have quite a bit I want to share. This was a Herculean task. Someone who has contributed so much over 50 years of professional musicianship, you know, that's kind of hard in a 45-minute, if I gave each year one minute. I would be over by five. So so without further ado, we're going to get started here. I chose to start with a quote, who we are cannot be separated from where we're from. And this is going to be a quote that I want you to remember as I walk through Mavis Staple's career. Uh, This quote comes from Outliers and Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book about people who have exceptional gifts and people that are able to Reach extreme s- levels of success and I just thought about that once I started my research here This story has to start with Robux pops staples He was born in Mississippi in December. He was the 12th of 13 children And you know, it's funny because his name is Robuck and he has a brother named Sears Seriously. <laughs> And uh I guess you run out of names as you keep going <laughs> But he was His early start was at the Dockery Farms Plantation, and the Dockery Farms Plantation is a very famous and infamous plantation in Mississippi. Uh, They picked cotton. That was their crop of choice, and the labor was hard and the money was little, but on the weekends, there was a blues guitarist named Charlie Patton. Some of you may have heard of that name, but he would stimulate the workers and rejuvenate them for the next week by strumming the blues in the town, and Pops began to learn how to play the guitar from Charlie Patton. He only knew how to play in the key of E, and that was the blues key. And he fingerpicked the blues, so he had a unique sound, and he was known for that tremolo. And you're going to hear it in some of the audio examples that I have provided. But he, he had a unique tremolo that was before his time, and many guitarists in the days after would, would try to imitate Pop Staples playing style. This is a picture of Dockery Farms, and I put a historical marker here because at the bottom, it references Pop Staples as one of the people who was instrumental in the development of blues guitar playing. The blues man always says what's on his mind twice. That's what Pop Staples says. And he got that from Blind Arthur Blake's Detroit Bound Blues, which was a song that talked about getting out of the cotton fields and going to where I could get a better life. And Pop Staples in 1936 took those words to heart and did just that. He saved up one year's money, $12, and that was a whole year's savings. In the middle of the Great Depression, he moved to Chicago. He was married at the time. His wife, Osceola, and their two oldest kids, Cleotha and Purvis, stayed back in Mississippi while he went to find a job. He found a job at the Union Stockyard and Transit Company. He worked on the floor known as the House of Blood. It was gruesome work but it paid $17 a week. July 10th, 1939, in Chicago, Illinois, a star was born. Roebuck and Osceola Staples welcomed in Mavis Staples. She had three older siblings, Cleoda, Purvis, and Yvonne. And for a long time, Mavis was the youngest. And when she turned about 12, they had another child named Cynthia. And a lot of people don't know about Cynthia because at the age of 21, she died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Um, and they said that she suffered from depression. Uh, so a lot of people don't know about the youngest sibling in their family. The Dirty 30s. This was the neighborhood on the south side of Chicago that the Staple family lived in. The Staple kids were part of fu- Future Music Royalty with Sam Cook. Lou Rawls and John Carter. These were Purvis. These were Purvis's friends. All right. They all attended Doolittle Elementary School and they also had access to the Regal Theater on 47th Street where they played the best of gospel R&B blues and bebop at the time. They saw Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn, Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton and many others perform at this time in the on the south side of Chicago. Hopewell Missionary Baptist Church. So the church was very important in the black community at this time. And this church in particular, because it had a piano. And in this piano, Lou Rawls and Sam Cooke, they would have a battle of the singers. And Mavis and her girlfriends would gather there to hear these battles because they were a little young. But this is where they were honing those skills. And Mavis said in her autobiography that she remembered when Sam Cooke would say, Whoa, whoa, whoa. And she said all the girls would go crazy and she said it wouldn't be the Holy Ghost neither. So, <laughs> but they had a very good time in the church. But this is where they began to develop their performance skill. Now, I had to put this in because this is a very funny story. So Osceola and Roba couldn't afford for all their kids to stay. In Chicago during the school year, because during the winter it was cold and they couldn't afford to, to buy the clothes, so they would send one or two of the children down south to, to stay with Osceola's uh, mother's parent, with her mother uh, for the school year. And Yvonne and Mavis went down one year, and Mavis fell in love with a song that said, "Since I fell, since I fell for you." And so she was singing this song outside of her school and she had an uncle who was walking by. He saw a crowd standing around watching someone sing and they were enthused. And when he found out it was his niece, he snatched her up and took her home to Grandma Ware's house. And Grandma Ware said, go get me a switch. (laughs) Grandma (laughs) Ware switched Mavis really good because she said, we don't sing the blues in this family. And long story short, She sent Mavis back to school with a short sundress on so so all her classmates could see the lashes on her leg. But now they said Mavis was a stubborn one. And in 1969, I don't know if you can hear it. Where's my sound guy? No no, cause it was up. On the computer? Mm-hmm. But uh, you're gonna have to click out of there to even see it. It's a little better. You might still get some more out of the system though if you check. Okay. Well or we'll just wanna roll with yeah, this. Yeah, we'll, we'll roll with it because I got a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the song. So 30 years later, she recorded this song as a solo artist at Stats. And she says she remembers going back to tell her grandma, hey, how do you like the song now? <laughs> and her grandma said, you still remember that lash and I gave you? So they had a nice moment many years later. So I have to talk about Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia Jackson lived in Chicago as well. She was regarded as the queen of gospel music. She was also a contralto. For those of you who know about singing, contralto is the lowest voice uh, that we classify the woman's voice. So That would be technically a baritone. They could sing notes down in the third octave if we were classifying from on a piano. And so those are very low notes. And Mavis credits Mahalia Jackson as the woman who taught her her voice. And Monday night, Tabernacle Baptist Church. So this would be the first time that Mavis got a chance to meet Miss Mahalia Jackson. She first heard about her listening to her records in their living room on Pop Staples phonograph. But now they're going to open for her on this particular night. And Mahalia... She could be a bit of loop according to Mavis. She had a personality that you didn't talk to Mahelia Jackson if you didn't know who she was. She she had a bit of a standoffish personality for what they say. They say gospel music was very cutthroat in this time and people didn't like to get too close because they wanted to keep their, you know, they wanted to keep their distance. But Mavis, she ignored that. So she ran up to Mahelia backstage and Mahalia said, okay, all right, yeah, yeah. Great, nice meeting you. <laughs> And so, Mavis goes out and sings, and they say she tears the house down. And then afterwards, she was about a teenager at this point, so she decided that she was going to leave the church service and go outside and jump rope with her friends. And they say Mahalia caught her leaving the church and said, hey, hey, get over here. And and in the middle of church, so... Mahalia came and summoned for Mavis to come and told her to sit down. Her pores were wide open, and she needed to go put on one of her brother's shirts to let her pores relax after singing. If she was going to be a singer, she needed to take her instrument seriously. And to make the point, the next day she called Mavis's mom and told her about the situation. But years later, in 1969, at what would be regarded as Black Woodstock, which was an event in Harlem, at this point, Mahalia Jackson's health was starting to el a little bit and the staple singers opened for her at this particular performance. And Mahalia got a little winded and so she saw her old buddy sitting over in the side of the stage and she called her up to have her help her sing a song. And the song was Take My Hand, Precious Lord. And they regard that as the passing of the torch. Mavis has always seen Mahalia Jackson as her mentor. And at this point, this is when Mahalia told her to take it on. And a few years later, Mahalia would, would pass. Now we're going to go back into the chronological events of the story. The Trumpet Jubilees was the group that Pop Staples participated in at Pro- Progressive Baptist Church. It was an all-male gospel group, and Pop sang the falsetto part. That was a popular part back in that time. Everybody wanted to sing the, you know, the Eddie Kendrick's part. But... <laughs> But he quit the group because the, the group wasn't very committed and he just had a problem with that. And they said Pops was always a man who, who gave his all. And this is a quote from the autobiography. One night he came home early because the guys in the Jubilees didn't show up for rehearsal. He went into the closet and, and got a little guitar and brought it from a pawn shop. It didn't have more than three or four strings on it, but it was enough to get us started. And this would be the event. That would lead to, will the circle be unbroken? In 1948, this was the first song that Pops taught his family. He learned this song from his parents. This was a very popular gospel tune at the time. And Mavis sang the baritone part. They said she had a problem holding her notes at the time. And I'm going to play a little bit of it for you. I know our sound isn't good, but... Right. So that was one of the that was the first song that he taught his family. And the second song that he taught them was if I could hear my mother pray again. These were two very popular songs in the Staples family. And Aunt Katie was living with the family at the time. And she heard him rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing. And she got to a point where she said, y'all ought to come sing at my church. And she was a member at Holy Trinity Baptist Church. And Reverend Chester Staples, another one of the brothers, he was the pastor of the church. (laughs) Remember, it's a big family here now. (laughs) And this church was on 33rd Street. I put that because, remember, they lived in the dirty 30s. Everything was right there in that community for them. The family collected $7 from the church offering after they got up and sang that song. And maybe say when they finished, they went back into it and they just kept singing it. The people just loved the song. (laughs) And Minister Lathrop, another minister from another church, Mount Zion Baptist Church, a few blocks down, he heard the song and, and approached Pops and said, "I want you to sing at my church." And that gave Pops he got he, he was he received some confidence from that moment. And he said, "Children, we're gonna go learn some more songs." <laughs> so the story goes that they they would continue to sing at churches around. The Chicago area, each church they sang at, they would receive a larger offering and each church, they would receive a well-rounded reception. Why was that reception so well? Well, Pops did something that was not common at the time. He was playing blues guitar over gospel songs. <laughs> now, this is the same old story for any music historian. That'll always get you in trouble or make you famous. <laughs> and in his case, it made him famous. None of these musicians in the family were actually trained singers. Mavis sang in choir for about two weeks in high school, but her voice didn't blend very well, and the choir teacher told her, look, I can't, I can't work with you. So she decided that she would quit the choir. Their harmonies were unconventional. Un- I mean, you have a 12-year-old singing the baritone part. Pops is singing falsetto. <laughs> Purvis is the second lead and he's singing falsetto. <laughs> so it had a very unique sound to their their sound and, and it, it just caught on. And people just fell in love with that sound. This is an early picture of the staple singers. You see here Purvis, Pops, Cleotha, and Mavis. Now Yvonne, they said she did not, she, she was a reluctant singer. Uh, Yvonne was more of the shy type. She liked to deal with the business and she fell in love with the South. So she returned to the South every year until she graduated from high school. So she did not sing with the group when she did not have to. So that's why she's not in the picture. Their first record label came, uh, the first record deal was under United Records. Evelyn Gay was of the Gay Sisters. She was the pianist and she sang a lot of songs. They, they were a popular quartet group of or a gospel group, I should say. And as the staples began to get more popular, they began to broadcast on WTAQ. And every Sunday, they would, they would play one or two songs, and people would hear those. And Evelyn Gay happened to hear it one day, and she approached a businessman by the name of Leonard Allen in September of 1953. They went in the studio with Leonard Allen, and they recorded Sit Down Servant," But they left the label... After two years, the reason they left the label was because Pops decided that, you know, we're doing good, but everybody was pushing them to want to do rock and roll. And Pops said, I'm not doing rock and roll. So he went to another label in 1953, VJ Records. VJ was actually the largest African-American owned record label at the time. It was on Record Row in Chicago. It was actually on the same block as Chess Records, which was another very popular and famous label at the time. The owners were Vivian Carter and Jimmy Bracken. They were R&B and blues and gospel lovers. And this is when they recorded Uncloudy Day. Their first session was in November 1955. And this is what made the Staples singer's career begin. Listen to this voice. Whose voice was that? Tell me no. No, that's a low no, right? That's low for me, no. How old do you think maybe Staples was when she was singing that? 14. She was about 14. <laughs> yes, and she was singing like that before then, okay? They said that it became a bet for people, they would go to the concert. And Purvis would stand in front of the mic and right before her first would come in, he would step to the side and she would step up and she would start singing. And she said they would look in the audience and they would see people go, oh, I knew it was a girl. (laughs) And she said people would bet their whole chat that she was a man when they heard her singing. Now, can you believe that? But I will say this. During that time, Uncloudy Day became so popular. It is what literally put them on the Chitlin circuit, as it was called at the time. All right. They were traveling to Detroit. They were traveling around and Uncloudy Day was that song that they closed each show with because that was their most popular piece at the time. And I will add another little annotation in here. Along that time is when they actually met the Reverend C.L. Franklin. Some of you know that name. Reverend C.L. Franklin was a prominent pastor in Detroit, and he had a singer of his own in his family. He had his daughter. She would open up every time he would preach in different places, and she would sit on that piano, and her name is Aretha Franklin. <laughs> and so the two families would become very good friends. All right, They would travel together. Back in this time... Because there were not a lot of places for blacks to find community. When they would go to a town, they would actually stay with each other. So the Franklins would be mainstays at the Staples home as well as the Staples at the Franklin home. So there was a camaraderie there. And and I didn't put this in the slideshow, but Stevie Wonder, Red Fox, you name them, they all stayed at Mama Staples house because they say she could cook a mean meal. (laughs) But after they left VJ, their next record label was Riverside Records. And this label was in New York City, so you know what happened when you go to New York. Everything multiplies. They signed with Riverside's Record in 1961 on a two year deal for $24,000. Now, it's 1961. That was a lot of money for a singer, especially a gospel group, okay? They performed. Some of their larger opportunities was performance at the Soul of Jazz at Carnegie Hall. They recorded a Christmas album. They did a TV special in New York City with folk acts. Now this was very important because at this time, the Staple Singers were singing covers mostly, if you think about it. A lot of the songs in their early repertoire were original material. They were singing popular songs that people knew from the South. And at that time, when they migrated to Chicago, that was the great migration from the South. So, over two million people migrated to the North. And so, these songs were resonating with the Northerners now who had better jobs. However, now that they're in New York with Riverside Records, they're starting to cross over to a more folk audience. One of the people performing on that Westinghouse TV special was Bob Dylan. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. One of the things that we know about the Staples family was that they were involved in the civil rights movement. Well, Pops heard of Dr. King on the radio in the 1950s. It wasn't until 1963 that he actually called Pops. Now, before this, Pops was kind of popular at this point, because in 1961, they sang at a very, very important venue, and this was inauguration of, who was the president in 1961? John F. Kennedy, correct. And that, that was broadcast all over the world. So people now know who Pop Staples is. So he called Dr. King in 1963 to arrange a meeting. They met at Dexter Avenue Church, and that church is in Montgomery, Alabama. That was the church that Dr. Martin Luther King was pastoring at the time. And during this meeting, well uh, actually I'm getting ahead of myself um, The Staple singers were actually on tour They were going to sing at, in Montgomery later that night Dr. King asked them to come to the 11 o'clock service He recognized them at the 11 o'clock service And after the service he met with the um, Pop Staples in a back room And they just talked and nobody disclosed what they spoke about However Mavis does recount they went back to the hotel And he said if he can preach it then we can sing it. Then we go to the Newport Folk Festival in 1963. This festival festival was founded by George and Joy, Joyce Wine. The festival was in Rhode Island. It featured acts Bob Dylan, Joanne Bayes, Johnny Cash, the um, SNCC Freedom Singers, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and this was a big event. First of all, Mavis said they were surprised because George and Joyce was an interracial couple, and they said in 1963 you didn't see that much. So, so they 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 were taken in very welcome at this event. Um, this was a big event. Newport was one of the major attractions for this new art form, folk music, and Bob Dylan actually debuted a piece at this. Newport Festival, Blowing in the Wind. This was the first time he debuted that piece. Alright? I put the Freedom Singers on here because they were very instrumental in the civil rights movement. Well, they had been traveling around the country singing of the movement, and they actually closed Newport with the Staples Singers and all of the other acts, and they joined hands and say, we shall overcome. Now, I put a question mark by Bob Dylan. I have to preface this a bit. A couple weeks ago, there was a documentary on Bob Dylan, and they didn't mention anything about what I'm about to tell you. So you can trust what I'm telling you is accurate, okay? (laughs) So there's a rumor that said that Bob Dylan and Mavis Staples had a relationship. Well, I can confirm they did. At At Newport, Bob Dylan and Mavis Staples actually made their relationship official. Now, Pop Staples, he really wasn't having that. (laughs) He really was upset. But Bob Dylan pursued anyway. He actually proposed marriage to Megan Staples. She turned him down. At the time, she said she didn't feel like Dr. King would want her to marry Bob Dylan. (laughs) But she would later admit that she regretted making that decision. She may say something about that tonight, who knows? After Riverside, they go over to Epic Records. Riverside collapses and Staples signs with the CBS subsidiary. Their debut release was Amen in 1965 and it was produced by Billy Sherrill. In March 1965, Selma, Alabama, there were a series of marches that took place and I was honored to get an opportunity to actually go to that site this past year with the Black Cultural Center. We took a, a group of students down and we crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Well, Pops and his family was watching these events take place on TV. See, the Staple Singers were traveling up to 200 shows a year at this point in time, so they didn't get a chance to actively march with Dr. King very often. But they kept up with everything on the newscast. And it was on in March of 1965 that Pops decided, "I got to start writing about what I'm seeing." And that's when the album, Freedom's Highway, was birthed. It was a live recording at New Nazareth Church on on 79th Street in Chicago. The first music pertaining to the civil rights movement would appear on this album. It contained tracks like Wade in the Water, Why Am I Treated So Bad, and Hammering Nails. So that's Long Walk to DC, one of the famous freedom songs and protest songs that Pops wrote. The caption you see is actually when they arrived in Montgomery, when they were marching up to the actual state capitol steps. The Stax Era. I'm going to play the track first. <laughs> Bobbin. I have to stop the track because I got to get to the end. <laughs> but in July of 1968, they signed with an old friend, Al Bell, who is now co owner of the Stax record label. They worked with Booker T and the MGs. That was one of the in house bands, and they were actually on the Stax label. Steve Cropper was the guitarist for that band, and he became one of their lead producers on their records when they were at the Stax with Stax. Muscle Shoals This was an area of northwest Alabama, and there was a group of guys called the Swampers. That was the rhythm section at Muscle Shoals. That's where the track you just heard, I'll take you there, was actually made. Mavis, I have to speak up on this, because she she never holds back when she talks. She says, I remember when we met them. We walked into this little country barn-looking studio, and I looked at this group of people, and I said, hmm, I wonder if these white guys got any souls she's saying from the first downbeat they were kicking <laughs> and, and, and they had a long relationship and, and this is one of the covers from their time at Stacks now if you notice here Purvis is no longer in the group around 1969 he left the group he wanted to go out and branch out and he actually opened up his own club in Chicago called Purvis Place Mavis also goes solo 1969, Al Bell had been wanting to push her out. She's been leading the group for much of its years as the lead singer. So they decided, hey, why don't we try a solo album? So the first album came out. It was self-titled Mavis Staples. A House is Not a Home. It was produced by Steve Cropper. In 1970, she released another album, Only for the Lonely. I Have Learned to Do Without You was one of the popular cuts from that. And it was produced by Don Davis. These solo albums didn't fare very well because at stacks there was a guy they called Black Moses. And he came out with an album called Hot Buttered Soul. And his name is Isaac Hayes. So after that, Mavis was a little upset with the music industry. She decided, hey, you know what? We put some quality work in, but there's an engine behind this. And after they pushed Isaac Hayes' stuff out above hers, she was trying to figure out, hey, What am I gonna do? So she took a break, but not for long. In 1971, the group actually went to Ghana with several other performers to do a concert and it turned into a movie. The movie was called Soul to Soul, where Prince actually saw this movie and was inspired by Mavis Staples' performance. Under his Paisley Park label, he signed her. Time Waste for No One came out in 1989. She, She was in the movie Graffiti Bridge that starred herself as well as Mars Day from time, in the Time, as well as Prince. And then she released another album in 1993. Now, these albums didn't do very well either. Why? Because Prince ran into a lot of issues with his label. And this is when they refused to distribute his artists. And this is when he became a symbol. But she wasn't done yet. She decided, you know what? I'm not I'm not finished yet. I still have more music. So her next album would be Have a Little Faith. It was produced by Jim Tulio. She had no label support. Her autobiography actually says that she spent $40,000 on credit cards to make this album. Alligator Records was the only record company that would pick up the record but it got her back on the road. She credits Yvonne, because this album came in the early 2000s. Her father passed in 2000, and once her father died, she said, she just didn't think she had any music left in her. But her sister had a nice, stern conversation with her, and she was back. That album garnered the attention of a young Chicago lyricist by the name of Kanye West. And in 2005, she joined them on stage at the Grammys for a performance in "Jesus Walks," and that's Kanye performing. That's a picture of them performing at the Grammys in 2005. This served as this brought her back into the relevance on a on a very national level. There began to be a lot of compilations of their former music that showed up. A lot of republishing of formerly published albums began to to pop back into circulation. Rye Cooter. He was an Americana multi, multi-instrumentalist, and he produced two albums for Staples. Andy Calkin was the, at, in, of Anti Records, he pushed Ry Cooder to create a new sound of a lot of their old former songs. Ry Cooder actually studied Pop Staples' guitar style. When they first met, he actually plugged his guitar into Pop's amp, and she said it gave her chills because he sounded just like it. This is one of the album, one of the two albums that Ray Cooder produced. It sold 59,000 copies in 2007. It was a reinterpretation of freedom songs. It assembled freedom and they actually assembled the real freedom singers for this project. Mavis had not been with them since Newport. Charles Neville and Ruth Harris were two of the originals that actually recorded on that project. Her next album was Live Hope at the Hideout. Hideout was a very small blue-collar bar, from what she said, and they packed in there. I actually have the picture from the session, and the album was released on November fourth of two thousand eight. And then, sitting in the audience was Jeff Tweedy of the band Wilco. He was sent there by one of the label owners at Anti because. They wanted her to consider working with him, and he wanted to see what her music was like. So he attended the live recording, and he agreed to produce two albums for Staples. The first one was You Are Not Alone. It was released in 2010 on her 71st birthday. Well, not on her 71st birthday, but right after her 71st birthday. It won her first Grammy for Best Americana Album. Now, the Staples did win a Grammy, Pops won a Grammy in 1999 for a solo project that he put out, but this was her first Grammy. Okay. She actually was able to tour this album on 169 tour dates, including Lollapalooza, which was, is a huge festival in the Chicago area. 169 tour dates. Y'all see her birthday up there? <laughs> In 2013, she released One True Vine, mostly acoustic. It features pop Silver rights songs and I Like Things About Me. Your Good Fortune was released in April of 2015. This was an EP, four tracks. It was produced by Son Little and it features two originals and two staples classics. And Living on a High Note, released February 2016, it was produced by Matthew Ward And it was inspired by Pharrell Williams, Happy. I'm going to play this one for you. I know I had to rush to the end, but I want to leave a little time for you to ask a question or two. That's the title track of her latest album. Now, here's some good news. I've been doing so much research on Maven Staples, Google now tells me everything she does. (laughs) So, I'll be the first to tell you earlier today the Staples actually released a Christmas album. Came out today. So, if you're interested in that, Go check that out. I I have just about four and a half minutes to take a few questions. 45 minutes goes really fast. I know I didn't get a chance to cover a lot of things like her Curtis Mayfield and let's do it again. But I knew that I wanted to try to get to where she is now before the 45 minutes was up. I have time for two questions. I would say anybody want to ask anything you would like to know. Yes, sir. Was she ever able of financial success? In her autobiography, uh, she doesn't go into detail about her finances, but I will say she lives on a condo overlooking Lake Michigan. (laughs) I'm going to assume she's all right. (laughs) And I'm sure her catalogs are doing very well. And I don't know how they're distributed, but I'm sure she's doing pretty well. Great question. Another question. Does she have children? Good question. She does not have children. She actually did get married. Um, She married Spencer Leake. He was a mortician. It did not work out. She said he was trying to bury her. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Actually, I was going to ask about Curtis Mayfield. Okay, yes. So Curtis Mayfield grew up with him. He was actually a part of a group called the Impressions. They were inspired by Pops early on in the early 50s. Um, he would go on and become a secular artist. They would stay in their lane for the longest, but in at, when they were at Stax, um, Curtis Mayfield actually became the executive producer of the soundtrack for two up-and-coming actors uh, in Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby in Let's Do It Again. Pops was very reluctant because that was their only secular song. They had never performed a secular song to that point. But Mavis said that he grew to love singing that song because the women would go crazy. <laughs> One more. Yes. Was familiar with Paul Robeson? Yes. Uh, Paul Robeson actually, they they actually did some um, events with him. Um, they, they mention that in the book. They don't go into detail about it, but there were, some early on in their career, there were, on the Chitlin circuit, they did a lot of traveling, and Paul Robeson came up on one of their um, actual performances. So it was briefly mentioned. Um, I, I will take a second to say this. George Cott he's actually a critic for the Chicago music scene. He's the person who wrote her autobiography. It's a very good book. We have it available in the Black Cultural Center. Um, I, I I tell you, please check it out. You're going to learn so much about a lot. <laughs> and there are so many stories that I couldn't tell, um, just didn't have enough time. But you would love, I mean, Miss Thomas will probably tell you, she probably heard me bust out laughing when I was preparing just because Some of the stuff that Mavis encountered in her life was hilarious. So if you have a chance, come over to the Black Cultural Center and check out the book. I think you will really enjoy reading it. You can also purchase this book uh, on Amazon or any other major book retailer. Thank you.